Chapter One Hundred and Fifty Seven of Varney the Vampire, Volume Three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Herndon Bell. Varney the Vampire, Volume Three, by Thomas Prescott Prest. Chapter 157 The Murder in the Wood del Noti, a Neapolitan Scene. There had been a great heat during the day, even for the sunny shore of Naples. Not a cloud had been seen all day, not a breath of air had been stirring. All was golden sunshine, all was fair. The very sea glittered like molten gold and the heat was oppressive in the extreme, so much so that even the Neapolitans themselves stirred not out of doors, but sank listless and sleepy on the couch, fanning themselves and endeavoring to create an air that would give some slight refreshment. Even the sea was calm, the very waves lashed the shore lazily, and appeared to partake of the general weariness that came over all nature, all things that moved. There was no soul stirring in the villas that were seen dotted about the environs of Naples, most of them like palaces, surrounded on every side by gardens and fountains, walled in and secure from the intrusion of a stranger. There was one of great magnificence adjoining the small wood del Note, that reared its stately structure on a slope looking towards the sea, though at a mile or two's distance, but close adjoining the wood. The gardens were extensive and abutted on the wood, which was a cool and shady spot at most times, and if such a one were now to be found, it would certainly be found in the wood del Noti. The trees grew tall and spread their branches out until they interlaced each other so completely that when the foliage was on them the light rarely found its way to the earth, save in a dim and diluted form. Here there might now and then be found some of those who had been overtaken by the heat of the day, or who from choice preferred the coolness of the woods to the walls of their houses. Here then, reposing beneath the great trees, might occasionally be found a few individuals who slept in coolness and shade. Near the wall of the villa where the wood ran were some tall black trees, mostly fir and cedar. There beneath one of the latter lay a tall, gaunt-looking man, who notwithstanding the weather was wrapped up in a cloak of large dimensions and sable color. There was something strange in that man's appearance. Above all, the cloak which he wore was a thing so much out of place that none other than himself could or would have worn it. What was his motive none could divine, were it not for the concealment of his person, which seemed likely enough. His slouched hat was bent over his eyes. His face was scarcely distinguishable between the collar of the cloak and the hat, though he lay on his back motionless, and without heeding aught that neared him. It was true there did not exist any reason why he should take any heed, seeing 
that at that point no one ever came. It was a spot that was not frequented, having a bad name, which usually deters people from trusting themselves in such a place. However, the stranger lay motionless and apparently without fear. Perhaps it was the long two-edged sword he wore that gave him his security. At all events he lay there in silence, and almost motionless, quite and entirely so, save the motion in breathing, and his eye now and then turned in a particular direction. The hours rolled by, and no one approached till the sun sunk towards the ocean, there to bury himself till another morrow appeared. The heat of the high noon was past, and the shadows of the trees reduced the light in the wood to a twilight, and the stranger arose and stood beneath the shadow of a tall one while he appeared to be listening for some sound which he appeared to expect from some particular quarter of the wood. The hour of noon is some hours past, and with it a gentle sea breeze begins to fan the heated shores, and here and there might be seen some of the inhabitants creeping about in the shady places. The stranger listened, and from the quarter to which he appeared most to direct his attention, he heard sounds proceed. These were those made by persons walking over the dried leaves and sticks, which lay scattered about from the effects of the storms that sometimes visit even these pleasant shores. She comes he muttered, and his eye glanced round, and he grasped the hilt of his sword. She comes, but does she come alone? He paused, and again listened. She comes not alone, another is with her, but no matter, she shall come. I have the means of security here, but above all I need her. He paused again and listened, but quietly drew his sword, which was long and sharp, and stood beneath the tree, while the voices and sounds slowly approached, until they came quite distinct and audible. "'And so,' said a man's voice, but in a low key, "'the Marchesa is not well.' "'She is quite indisposed.' I was about to say I could hardly feel it in my heart to regret it. And why could you be so unfeeling? Because, my dear Fiametta, had she been well, you would scarce have got away from her this evening, and I should have had but little of your sweet company. I admit that. But were you not selfish in desiring it? Yes, I was. And are you not ashamed to say so? No, I am not, Fiametta. I can acknowledge anything that concerns myself and you, for I must admit a great deal of selfishness in this matter. I love you tenderly, and that puts all the world beside us. I think nothing of any one save you, and for you I would sacrifice the whole world. I am fearful of you. And wherefore should you be fearful of me, fair one? Am I not willing and ready to fight and die for you? I would not fear the summons of death this moment 
if I knew that I could save you but one hour's pang. I hope, said Fiametta, leaning on her lover's arm, I hope that you will never be called upon for so sad a sacrifice. I am sure I should never know an hour's happiness if I thought there was a possibility of it. I do not think there is any possibility of that happening. But, Fiametta, when do you hope for an end to this slavery? Can't you leave the old Marchesa? She is anything but kind to you, and would marry you to one of her poor relatives. And unless you marry with her consent, you will never be rewarded for the many listless hours you have passed, night after night, at her bedside. But she will reward me when she dies. What an age to wait! Surely you cannot grudge her life. I do not, only so long as it is a term of imprisonment for you. If you would leave her and come back with me, I will make you happy. You shall have a happy home and form new ties and new affections. I have not got so tired of the old that it is necessary to change them. But I cannot leave the Marquesa. She is almost alone. No one goes near her to do her a good office, and I am her only friend. And yet she won't give you liberty. She says I am too young, and if you must know all, she says I am too pretty to be trusted in everybody's company. I must admit there is much truth in that, and yet I cannot see its application in this instance, as far as I am concerned. No, that is not to be expected from you, you know. But this must be admitted, that she speaks of men in general. Besides, she says, if I have patience to await her death, she will handsomely endow me. Upon my word, I think the old woman only wants to lease her life a few years longer, or, I should say, wishes to live forever. How can you make that appear? Thus, when you are waiting for people's deaths, you never do succeed in hearing of their dying within any reasonable space. It gives them new life, and the spirit of opposition and obstinacy is created within them, and they won't die. For shame! Nay, you will find, Fiametta, that we shall both grow grey-headed in waiting for the happy moment when you and I are man and wife. Do not stay, then, any longer. Leave here, and come with me. We shall be happy, and defy the world. But look what a dowry I shall lose. Never mind about that. Such a dowry would not make you young again, nor would it recall many years of past service and attendance upon her. You must know how very precarious such a life must be. It may so happen that you may forfeit all you have deserved through some fancy of this old woman. She may take it into her head to insist upon your marrying her poor cousin there. You know, if you were to displease her, she might very easily leave you nothing for your pains. I admit all that. But it amounts to nothing, because she has said as much that she would never force me, 
only she wished me to marry him, as being a worthy man, and one who would act justly to me through life. Justly through life? What a sound! It sounds but little of love. Justly, indeed. I would I could act no otherwise to others but to you, Fiametta. I should as soon think of forgetting you as merely acting justly. I love you. I would at this moment lay down my life for you. At that moment they neared the stranger, who was standing silently and motionless, with his sword concealed beneath his cloak, but eagerly watching them and devouring every word they uttered. And, by degrees, they drew nearer and nearer. I am sure it will be wise to wait a while. I am sure the poor old Marchesa will not live long. She cannot eat and drink, save with great difficulty. I am sure we shall not have long to wait. I am willing to abide by your wishes, Fiametta, but it cannot be well to wait for an age. It cannot be well to wait till we are old. I know that, but— Fiametta screamed as her eye fell upon the stranger who rushed out upon them with his sword drawn. This gave her male companion time to defend himself by in the first instance jumping aside. Mercy! Mercy! screamed Fiametta. Her lover drew his sword and put himself upon his defense, saying as he parried the first thrust of his enemy, Villain! What mean you? Is it robbery you would attempt? Or murder alone? Will nothing but shedding blood satisfy you? The stranger made no reply, but pressed on furiously, and with great strength and skill for two or three minutes, when Fiametta's lover, by changing his ground, contrived to elude so desperate an assault upon his life. Fiametta, however, believed her lover was getting the worst of it. She screamed out for help several times, but none came. However, it caused the stranger to press his adversary more quickly and to hasten his own movements, for he was quite desperate and furious. But this laid him open to the assaults of the other. But so fierce the attack, and such was the strength exhibited that Fiametta's lover was compelled to give ground. What is your object, villain? Speak! But the stranger spoke not, but furiously threw himself upon him, and endeavored to beat down his guard, which his great strength and height almost enabled him to do. But as the other gave ground, he was obliged to follow him, and then his foot caught against some of the tangled roots that grew out of the earth, and threw him forward, and his adversary, not slow to profit by it, and rid himself of so dangerous an enemy, stepped forward and received him upon the point of his sword. A good deliverance, said the lover, drawing his sword out of the body as it fell to the earth. A timely deliverance, truly. He wiped his forehead, for the perspiration streamed down his face. The day was warm, and his exertion great. Oh, Jose, exclaimed Fiametta, what a horrid man! A brigand, I suppose. But he said nothing. He asked nothing. No, he meant murder. There is no doubt of it now in the world. 
but I never saw such an ill-looking wretch before. As Jose spoke, he kicked the hat and cloak off which the brigand wore, and which remained partially on. There was a ghastly wound in his breast, where Jose's sword entered and let out the life of the stranger. He was very tall, but thin and emaciated, his features remarkable, and he wore some straight, straggling hair that was disordered and fell over his forehead and face of more than marble paleness. Well, I never met with such an encounter before, and I never met with such an ill-looking villain, said Jose. Come away, Fiametta. We need not say anything to anyone about the affair. I will not come here again, though it may be needless to take the precaution, seeing that none could be brought to match this fellow in villainy and ugliness. At least it is so to my mind. Come away. Wiping his sword on the cloak of the fallen man and sheathing it, he took the hand of Fiametta and, drawing it through his arm, left the spot. End of chapter 157